from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the weekly internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Carl Franklin introducing show number two with guest David Sengupta, recorded April 12, 2007. Run As Radio is produced each week by Quap Productions, offering professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. This is Richard Campbell. You are indeed listening to Run As Radio, and I'm here, as always, at least for the second time anyway, with my cohort, Greg Hughes. Hello, Richard. How are you? Happy to be here. Glad to be on to another show. You know, we're making our way. I think we have some really interesting things to talk about today, and we're going to enter the world of exchange. Yes, indeed. And I've got uh, a bit of email, not the way we were supposed to get it. You know, we put together the uh, the website, and we had info at runasradio.com, but for some reason it's broken. So I got some uh, comments on my blog that were supposed to be email. Let me read this one to you. Uh, great show, Richard. I tried to send some fanboy-style email congratulating you in a more private arena, but it seems that the info at runasradio.com email address is not working properly. Here's an excerpt from the email. One, will you be getting a schedule up on the website as you get up and running? And based on that, the answer to that, two, will we be able to submit questions for you to ask your guests? I think that is a question. <laughs> that is a question, isn't it? And that's from uh, Mike Minutillo. Thanks, Mike. Sorry the email didn't work. We already have fanboys. <laughs> it was only going to be fanboy style. It's great, that's great all. to hear from you, Mike. <laughs> so uh, absolutely, I'll be putting a schedule up. As we start to get some shows booked and we can let you know what's coming, uh, we'll put that on the website. We will fix the email address for now. If you want, you can email me at my POP address, richard at POP.com. That's P-W-O-P. Uh, the comments is fine if that's the way you want to go on the blogs. Uh, definitely, please send us your ideas for shows. Uh, we've got lots of thoughts as well, but we'd love to hear your feedback. Are we getting the right format? Are you hearing the show the way you want to hear it? Do we need to go longer? Do we go shorter? Are we talking about things you care about? In the end, if you don't like it, we've got nothing to do. It's so. nobody's show if it's not for the listeners. That's it. All right. So let's uh, get to our guest. David Sengupta is a global director of product management for messaging and migration products at Quest Software. He is responsible for all aspects of product strategy for email, instant messaging, unified messaging, and related solutions. A Microsoft MVP in the Exchange Server category since 1998, Sengupta has contributed to most Exchange and Windows magazines and numerous books and white papers. He's a regular speaker at key international events, including Microsoft TechEd and IT Forum. He has worked with Microsoft Exchange since its inception. David has an MTS from Tyndale Seminary, Canada, and a BSc from University of Ottawa, Canada, and an MCSE in messaging. David is also an analyst for Ferris Research, runs a blog on email compliance news, is a columnist for searchexchange.com, and is a technical editor for Windows IT Pro Magazine. He's on the PR committee of the Electronic Discovery Reference Model Project, a member of the Information System Audit and Control Association, and a member of the Institute of Computer Forensic Professionals. His publications are read daily by English and Mandarin speakers around the world. 
Welcome, David. Thank you. Glad to be on the show. Wow, 1998. You've been involved with Exchange since the beginning, pretty much. Yeah, since uh, beta of Exchange 4.0. You've been you've been through the the painful days of Exchange as well as the uh, the more pleasant recent days. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was a long back then. It was a very very different product. It's it's gone through quite a lot of change. Yeah, Exchange has definitely matured and and changed a lot over the years. From uh, just doing email and moving into instant messaging and then backing out of instant messaging, the web store, and then uh, now into unified messaging. Definitely exciting. And I haven't had a chance to do a migration to Exchange Server 2007 yet, although I'm itching to do it. I think the 64-bit requirement is spooking me a little. And, and, and just in general, I think Exchange has this knack for being a bit frightening as a technology. Yeah, I mean, def- definitely uh, Microsoft has gotten a lot better as far as uh, making the upgrade path a lot easier. Um, the 64-bit requirement is uh, affecting, I mean, people, you know, think about it. And initially when Microsoft first announced it, it was a bit of an issue. But uh, nowadays we don't hear of it as a, a huge issue from our customers. About something like 80% of our customers have to buy 64-bit hardware for their migrations. But uh uh, at the end of the day, things uh, work out well because they can scale up more users on their Exchange 2007 boxes. What What are the big reasons to go to Exchange 2007 over over Exchange 2003? Well, I mean, 64-bit, as I mentioned, is is definitely um, one pro. Uh, there's a lot more flexibility from a compliance standpoint. Uh, things like transport rules uh, allow you to control email flow throughout your Exchange environment. So when you think of the rules available within Outlook where you want to be able to control, uh, you know, or take action based on certain criteria in a message, you can do that now at the enterprise level um, and control traffic routing throughout your organization and, and set up Chinese walls so that one part of the organization can talk to the other, that kind of thing. So definitely a lot more controls around email. Things like unified messaging are getting a lot of attention, so the ability to store voicemail. I mean, unified messaging has been around for a long time with uh uh, numerous third parties, Avaya, Cisco, and others uh, that have had solutions. But uh, with Microsoft moving this way, it's definitely uh, been a move towards the mainstream. And then if you look at just what Microsoft is doing across the platform, end-to-end around voice and, and enterprise telephony, um, you see devices such as the, the new Tangier phones that Microsoft is has at least released some information around and um, Office Communications Server uh, and other um text and, and speech-related and, and, and uh, uh, video conferencing-type solutions. There's just a lot of momentum happening around uh, the Microsoft platform. And I know you mentioned this on your blog, and I was at the MVP Summit as well, where Bill Gates said in the sort of keynote presentation, imagine a world without PBXs. Do you really see this whole unified messaging approach that Exchange is taking as a move towards that? Yeah, I do. Um, when you look at um, some of the technologies, I mean, e- even today, with uh, you can set up an Exchange 2007 server with just an IPP, IP PBX, uh, full connectivity there, and uh, just looking at where Office Communication Server is going and where Microsoft is driving pretty hard, I think uh, it'll be in uh, a few years or even sooner, uh, we'll start to see uh, enterprises deploying without a PBX, and we're already hearing of companies uh, so I, mean, I work for Quest Software, and we're hearing of companies in Europe, for for instance, that are setting up entire buildings that um, have no PBX in the entire building uh, and are just relying on Exchange 2007 unified messaging. So 
Uh, it'll be a while until it becomes mainstream, but uh, when it does, I think uh, y- you'll see environments without PBXs. And you mentioned the Tangay phones. This is—is uh, is Microsoft actually producing this, or is it a third party? Microsoft's working with a number of third parties, and and so the Tan- Tangay uh, is a code name for uh, a certain form factor of devices. And like I say, not a whole lot has been uh, publicly released around them. Uh, but if you look at some of the partnerships that Microsoft has established recently, so companies such as uh, LG, Nortel, and, and others, where um, uh, Microsoft is obviously working with those partners to uh, look at phones that are support name-based dialing, support office communication server um, integration uh, from a presence standpoint, integration with Exchange 2007 voicemail and calendaring and, and such. So uh, you'll start to see name-based dialing um, pop up on, on these phones where you don't have to actually remember a number, but you can just dial up someone based on name and you'll be able to see people in your team, whether they're online or offline. And if they're online, then just the ability to just push a button and, and very rapidly just dial uh dial those people from uh your USB enabled phone. Yeah, IT pros all over the place more and more are reviewing and taking a look at the possibilities of doing, you know, VOIP replacing PBXs with something more flexible, less expensive potentially. Um and as we're talking about more integrated, what do they need to be thinking about today? Let's say they're already in Exchange House, they're looking at moving to Exchange 2007 in order to take advantage of what uh, Exchange 2007 has to offer, what what kind of things do they need to be keeping in mind? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, definitely one of the things that uh, companies need to think about um, pretty well off the bat is is just organizationally, uh, the teams that handle telephony and, and phone systems and patch closets and all that kind of thing are typically very different from the teams that run Active Directory and Exchange and messaging within the organization. So probably the one of the first places to start is just to get those teams talking to to one another um, and then uh, just understanding each other's requirements and, and starting to look at whether uh, Exchange 2007 is a viable solution in, in those uh, scenarios. And some of the early indications that we're hearing is that there's, there's just a lot of ROI opportunity around, um, you know, there's a lot of costs associated with provisioning phones whenever someone moves around in an organization and Someone actually has to go visit the desk, put a phone in place. In some cases, that's a, a third party that's actually hired at a fixed price per phone, um, that kind of thing, and, and then running to the patch closet, making sure it's all patched through. And, and so there's definitely an opportunity there uh, from an ROI perspective. So organizations, need, like I said, just need to start with those teams talking to each other and, and, and starting to talk the same language and understand each other's worlds. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And we tend to think about IT projects as being purely technology-driven when really there's quite often some critical people and process components to any IT project. For sure. You know, you you brought I, you were bringing up the whole issue of telephones, and I've always loved the idea that I would you know be able to dial from Outlook and and things like that. And it brings back the thoughts of the old Tappy interfaces, which sort of fell by the wayside. And uh, we, we've never they, those never worked quite right, and it seems funny that the solution was not to integrate the phone with the computer so much as to turn the phone into just another part of the computer. It's just another part of the network. Yeah, I, and and that's one of the reasons I think Microsoft will end up being successful with their attempt is, is because they own so much of the platform. I mean, they're already, you know, on your desk in, in many cases with Word or Excel. Uh, you know, they've got the, the operating system. Making the phone part of all of that just means that you can, you know, be sitting in a Word document, type, have someone's name in the document, 
and then potentially right-click, phone them, all that kind of thing. So it just becomes yet another object within the world that we, we work in every day. Yeah, the presence information of the calendar and their instant messaging status, a direct dial telephone, uh, for example, on SharePoint and all the different uh, the Office integrated applications is really pretty powerful. For sure. Maybe we should talk a little bit about how instant messaging fits into this equation. I meet more than one organization that simply does not allow instant messaging at all on the platform inside of the organization. But I think that's a little archaic these days. Yeah. So so from an instant messaging standpoint, I think what happened is um, there was a, a proliferation of, of, of solutions both out of Microsoft and, and from third parties outside of Microsoft uh, for instant messaging. and, and Obviously, instant messaging took off a lot faster than I think most of us expected it would. Uh, the industry was ripe, just the world was ripe for that kind of communication um, uh, modality. And so I think what happened is things just got out of, out of control. And, you know, on, on one side, you had the financials with uh, their need for re- regulatory compliance. And uh, instant messaging was, was abused in those scenarios. And so they had to lock all that da- down. On the other hand, you just had, you know, or- organizations... You know, typical corporations or enterprises where uh, instant messaging started to either become a violation of, or at least a perceived violation of, just um, general productivity and, and and that kind of thing, and it, just just the fact that it it was out of the control of IT organizations in many cases, I think, was a concern. What we're seeing now is organizations, um, at least from an office communication server perspective, are really taking a hard look at. Um, and in many cases have deployed or are in the process of deploying uh, enterprise office communication server deployments that are under their control, um, and then just making sure those are enabled to uh, which organi- whichever people within the organization need uh, that capability. And I think we're, we're starting to see a lot of um, uh, productivity restored where, where they had to block it for whatever reason, um, and just companies getting ROI out of instant messaging. I think one of the big the big concerns, especially for the financials, has to do with uh, the requirements to log all instant messaging if you're going to do it. And uh, you know, one of the beauties of of uh, live communication server, office communication server, is is the ability to to do that logging, but also to bridge over to the public instant messaging networks and and to exercise some control over that. Absolutely. Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, we're we're dancing along the concerns around regulatory compliance and a general uh, liability exposure, and email just seems to be in the news constantly uh, on the exposure side. Uh, and electronic discovery is something I worked with a number of years ago. I know that's some area you've done some things as well, if David. Maybe we could talk a bit about where Exchange is going uh, in supporting those issues. Yeah, good. That, that's a good point. So email definitely is something that we're seeing uh, literally every day in the news. I mean, just today uh, in the news, we've been reading about the White House and how there was, I have a story right in front of me where there's um, at least 22 people who are using uh, laptops and email, email accounts for official purposes that weren't part of the, the you know, the, the, the typical or the, the approved email system at the White House. And I mean, regardless of what's true and, and what isn't true and what's room and all that kind of thing, it just underscores the the importance of email in our day to day business communications and also personal communications. And so, just being able to control that from a compliance standpoint, understand what's what email is being used. So, doing things like reporting and analytics is becoming more and more important. Uh, and then, from a discovery standpoint, when there is um, either a public in- inquiry in the cases of, of government um, or a, a lawsuit or, or whatever uh, type scenario. 
discovery is just becoming more and more important within organizations. And I, I guess the trick here is you don't want to find out what your email exposure is like after you get the writ for discovery. Absolutely. You, you want to know ahead of time. Yep. So Exchange uh, 2007 specifically, you talked a bit about there are some new rules engines in there to facilitate supporting uh, uh, rules around protecting yourself in discovery scenarios. So what's uh, what do they look like? Uh, what kind of device? What kind of software are we talking about here? Okay, so I mean, before we talk really specifically about um, the technology, again, similar to what we were talking about earlier, um, a lot of times it's people, process, and technology working together um, that uh, really end up being a solution to to a business problem. And so with the discovery problem, um, again, it, it's no different. And so. Um, just taking whatever approach you take towards legal discovery in your organization, especially if you're subject to uh, either potentially or, or having a lot of lawsuits and some of the, the large organizations that we deal with uh, at Quest, I mean, we'll have, you know, 50, 60, 70 lawsuits ongoing at, at any particular time in, in some of our large customers. Um, and so those organizations tend to take a proactive approach to discovery. And so they'll architect their environment uh, both exchange and, and, and other systems since discovery doesn't just apply to email, it applies to file system data, in some cases database information as well. Uh, and so just having to be proactive in setting up that environment in a way that uh, minimizes risk and minima- minimizes um, attack surface and ensures that if there is a requirement to preserve information under a duty to preserve or some other requirement that that the procedures are in place, that the right people are in place, and that the people know what the procedures are, and that they have the technology to, to put that legal hold in, in, in place. When discovery is actually required, um, again, if, you, if an organization has been proactive, um, they will put the pieces in, into place. And in some cases, there are elements of Exchange 2007, which I'll touch on shortly, that, uh, uh, that definitely uh, help out from that perspective. What we see a lot is organizations that are in a reactive scenario, that uh, maybe they're not as large organizations, or maybe they just never... Maybe they don't fall under any uh, particular uh, regulatory compliance or SOX or anything like that, but they've got a lawsuit or they've had something unexpected come up where all of a sudden they're they're thrown into the spotlight or thrown into a scenario where, uh, for whatever reason, whether it's corporate risk or risk of reputation or just having to respond to a particular issue at hand, they have to discover uh, evidence. And in that reactive scenario, if if the organization has not set things up with discovery in mind, things can get a lot more complex and a lot more expensive. And that's where we hear of, um, you know, organizations that either cannot comply and cannot produce the evidence that's required, and in which case sometimes reputations comes into question and, and all sorts of issues. Um, or you, you hear of just very, very expensive legal discovery scenarios where companies have to just ship, you know, truckloads of tapes or, or whichever, you know, uh, in some cases, cell phones and, and, and other, you know, uh, data uh, data devices, whether it's servers or laptops or whichever, off to third-party forensic for firms for recovery purposes. So. so, so what is Utopia in that sense? Then, what what's the uh, what would be the industry best practice, if you will, for being prepared? So, best practice again is uh, being proactive. So, when you think from just an exchange standpoint, um, and you know, leave file system and all that kind of thing out of it. But when you think of exchange, and you think of, you need to think about where your data is stored. 
typically there's there's four main silos that I like to think of uh, as far as uh, email within an organization, at least from an exchange standpoint. You've got data that's in your production mail servers. You have data within PSTs and other offline, in some cases stored as MSG or text or other other formats on on people's laptops and computers, and in some cases on the network, even though that's not really recommended by Microsoft. Um, uh, thirdly, you'd have, in some cases, uh, archives if you've got um, companies that are using email archives or some sort of in-house uh, archiving solution. And then fourthly, um, backups. So, I mean, backups are not intended as an archive, but just the nature of uh, tape-based or VSS uh, or, in some cases, CDP backups means that there's email data there uh, that you need to think of from uh, a dis- discovery standpoint. So, so your first layer of defense is minimizing the your tax surface. So look at all those different silos, think of where the liability is, and then cut down, you know, A, how long do you hold on to your tapes? If you don't have to hold on to them too long, maybe just hold on to them for, you know, a month and then destroy them afterwards. Um, archives, you know, what kind of data has to go into your archive? Do you even need to archive? In some cases, organizations need to, and other organ- in other organizations, uh, their legal counsel will, will will make a decision not to archive. So so those kind of decisions need to be made. Um, keeping data in your production exchange servers um, can be uh, a real liability, especially if you've got a lot of exchange servers and if they're if they're widely distributed. Uh, because again, having to find information across all those servers uh, if they're distributed can be very hard and very complex, and you may not be able to do do that within the time that uh, is allotted. And if there is a, a legal scenario that comes up. Uh, and then finally, PSTs, again, just an incredible amount of risk associated with people being able to create PSTs. And again, it sort of depends on what the organization's tolerance is uh, for risk and, and, and how much uh, value they place on, on or risk is associated with email. Um, but, you know, if PSTs are in, in, enabled and if thumb drives and, and other remove, uh, removable storage devices are um, available, then people can put a PST on there and take the, the data outside of the organization quite easily. So um, yeah, you need to reduce the amount of uh, data that's that's out there and the amount of uh, different silos. Uh, and then finally, you need to be able to uh, discover against whatever silos you do have. So organizations may decide to lock down all PSDs, uh, may have an archive, and may minimize how much mail is in their exchange servers, for instance, and only keep 30 days there before archiving it out, and may delete all of their uh, their backup tapes after 30 days. And so in that scenario. They would need some sort of a solution to search across exchange, and um, PSDs wouldn't be an issue because uh, they've been locked down. Uh, archives typically have a, a mechanism for searching, um, and then backup tapes, um, typically with just 30 days worth of backup tapes, if they only have few servers, then there shouldn't be a huge issue or huge liability as far as having to get data off of inaccessible media. You know, you've mentioned PSTs several times, and that's a... a pretty common set of questions I know that I get related to how do I control PSTs? How do I lock them down? What does lockdown mean? Um, often seen as, as a very large area of liability and with a big, with a big surface area for problem. Um, maybe you could touch a little more detail on some of the different things that are available nowadays for exercising control over PSTs. Sure. Good question. So from a PST perspective, um, there is a switch available with um, Outlook today. It's a registry key that you can, uh, lock down the ability to create PSTs, and so uh, we see organizations doing that just to completely uh, block the the ability for end users to create create them. Um, there are also um, some different tools on the market for actually going out and uh, harvesting PSTs off people's laptops. Archive vendors typically will have 
uh, a tool built into their archive to actually move data off and, and into the archive and, in many cases, delete the original PST uh, um, or any, do any, any sort of throttled migration of the PSTs into the archive over a period of a week or two weeks or whatever, depending on how much volume uh, is, is involved. So that would be uh, one aspect. A lot of the archive vendors, um, or at least some of them at least, have offline clients. And so um, replacing PSTs, which are out of the control of IT, with an offline co- client that is tied into a central archive, in many cases provides uh, a much more robust and a much more uh, controllable uh, scenario, uh, and and then in some cases, uh, you know, especially organizations that ha- have highly mobile sales forces, for example, that kind of thing. If they haven't got an archive deployed, they may find that you know allowing uh, PSDs is acceptable, and and for certain community communities within the organization, and so they might say sales reps can have them, uh, and then every once in a while they do an audit of what's out there and maybe copy the stuff into a central network network share, so at least they have the data. But uh, but really, the best approach. Um, if legal compliance is really an issue, uh, is either migrate everything to an archive or block it completely. Yeah, you can definitely see your mobile guys are going to end up with PSTs some of the time. But if you have some policy around there and some control over those machines, you're going to have an opportunity to clean them up once in a while. For sure. Uh, you mentioned that the registry control over Outlook. Do you know that is that only 2007 or was there earlier versions that had that capability? It was earlier. I've forgotten exactly which version it was introduced in, but it wasn't just Outlook 2007. Good. So it's been around a while. Yeah, it has. And I got to think that feature was exactly along the lines of dealing with compliance issues. Absolutely. So you get into a situation where you're dealing with a discovery case. Is there features in Exchange 2007 that are going to help you? So one of the things that's new, as you know, with Exchange 2007 is the fact that um, Windows PowerShell has been built in uh, to provide essentially a command line scripting interface for uh, all of the functionality within Exchange 2007. Right. Within the uh, PowerShell um, um, script, there's the ability to run what's called an export mailbox commandlet. Um, and when run uh, in, in a certain uh, configuration, you can actually go in and say, you know, search all of my mailboxes across a particular scope, whether it's the entire organization or certain servers, that kind of thing, and search for certain criteria um, in those mailboxes. You could say, go out and find anyone who's got, um, you know, uh, a message with the subject line fi- that contains finance, or anyone who, uh, you know, any mailbox uh, that meets certain criteria, go and search those, or a specific user's mailbox, and then find the information that's there and spit it into a target investigator's mailbox. Um, so it's pretty powerful uh, functionality that's been built in Exchange 2007. It's based on the full-text indexing um, that has been dramatically improved in Exchange 2007 So uh, and that is turned on by default now um, and really gives an investigator the ability to go out without having to actually configure Outlook to log on to someone's mailbox or anything like that, to actually go out, search, search for data, and then spit it into a target uh, mailbox. One of the things that Microsoft is working on in SP1 of Exchange 2007 is actually being able to support export to PST, which is sort of that missing piece that uh, a lot of uh, corporate uh, offices of general counsel or lawyers uh, really are looking for for investigational purposes. Yeah, that sure sounds like the kind of discovery tools that were being built a few years ago to go and, and harvest kind of information from from uh, email farms now built into Exchange. Yeah, and so you may be familiar with a product uh, with a, a Microsoft tool called XMerge, which Microsoft used to ship, and and it's still available and still works on Exchange 2007. 
Uh, they haven't locked it down or anything like that, but they've stopped development on XMerge, and really the export mailbox commandlet replaces that functionality. And so the, the export to PST was sort of the last step as far as trying to get feature parity with what was in, in XMerge. Well, and really, all XMerge could do was pull a mailbox out as a PST or put it back. This is way more sophisticated. Yeah, just the, abil- the ability to go um, and and script it all and automate it all. I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of power there. One of the interesting things that um, we're going to see over the next while is as, you know, there's now voice data stored within voicemails, uh, within, within Exchange. Um, I think we're going to start seeing... Um, the whole text-to-speech and speech-to-text um, uh, interaction becoming more and more important, especially when it comes to search. So when you think of legal discovery, right now we're used to searching things like email and all that kind of thing, which is hard as it is. Um, add on to that the whole modality of speech and, and, and you know, just the, you know uh, I don't know whether it'll be eye filters for speech or, or, or what, but some sort of technology is going to be needed to be able to go in and uh, either transcribe speech into text so that it's searchable or actually search it in place. And I'm sure that Cambridge Labs and other labs out there are, are well into working into stuff like that, and I'm sure Microsoft has been working on that as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens. Well, that's the, the other side of unified uh, messaging is going to be that all this information is one place. So the uh, exploration of it or the discovery of it, so to speak, is going to be that much easier. Yeah, uh, for sure. If you look at um, Microsoft Office SharePoint Server, so Moss, um, they have um, a SKU called MOSFS or codename or, or short, short form MOSFS, so Microsoft Office SharePoint Server for Search. Uh, it'll be interesting this, to watch how Microsoft develops uh, MOSFS. Um, they're, they seem to be leaning towards sort of enterprise search and, and providing sort of a lower level of feature type SKU just for search. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, Google Compete is part of that and Google's enterprise search capabilities, that kind of thing. So, It'll be interesting to see how how they develop that and whether um, or when you know they come out with something uh, speech related from a MozFS standpoint. Yeah, that's a good place to pull that in. And uh, you know, Microsoft has the advantage of controlling most of the data that people are searching, so it makes sense that they would ultimately provide the search tools for it as well. Yeah, de- I mean, definitely a lot of pieces that have to come together. I mean, you look at uh, Windows Desktop Search, WDS as well. Um, you know, all of those different teams within Microsoft are all. Um, I mean, to some extent they talk, to some extent they don't. So it'll be interesting to see how well Microsoft can execute on on getting those teams to all work together and uh, in a way that facilitates the kind of enterprise search that is sort of the the holy grail of, of legal discovery or just inter, you know enterprise information management, um, to use a Gartner term. Well, David, thanks very much for uh, your thoughts on this. Anything you want to close with? Have we uh, touched on sort of key issues around this, or are we missing a few points? Yeah, well, I think uh, I think we've We've covered a lot of ground, um, and I mean, like I said earlier, people, process, and technology are really important, and so organizations looking to get control over information, whether it's from a legal perspective or other perspective, really need to uh, look at the processes that they have in place um, from a risk mitigation perspective and, and in general, and Exchange 2007 plays an important piece of that, uh, as do other technologies as well. I do think that it's important that uh, IT teams get together with their legal groups once in a while to make sure we're all thinking about the same key issues. Absolutely. Well, David, I appreciate your time today, and I hope we'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks, David. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again soon on Run As Radio. Run As Radio.